Welcome to a bonus episode of Legends of Film. Today, I have an interview with writer Tim Lucas. Mr. Lucas was the publisher of Video Watchdog magazine. He also wrote Mario Bava, All the Colors of the Dark, studies in the horror film Videodrome. Also, Mr. Lucas has written the novels Throat Sprockets and The Book of Renfield. Enjoy the interview. First, I must tell you how much I miss receiving that manila envelope in the mail every month with the latest issue of Video Watchdog, and you and your wife, Donna, published the magazine. Uh, What do you miss most about the magazine? What I miss most is probably receiving the contributions from the writers that we had for us, and just to see what we're up to, because in my own viewing of movies, These days, it's not only greatly curtailed, but even if I was as voracious as I could be, there are certain elements of what's happening in home video that I couldn't keep up with. And and our uh, fellow contributors, you know, helped to uh, keep me informed that way. So that's what I missed most, reading their work. Okay. One of my favorite features in Video Watchdog was Ramsey's Rambles and by horror writer Ramsey Campbell. And how did he come to write for the publication? Ramsey had been a, uh, a reader and, and subscriber of ours for a long time, and I can't remember if it was I who went to him or if he suggested it to me, but we were looking for something like a guest column that could either be a, a regular contributor or a revolving door of contributors that would allow uh, high-profile writers to write a bit about the genre. So. Either way, uh, he had sent me an essay about Black Sunday, and I really liked what he did with it. And so it just worked out that that Ramsey was was willing to do it, and he kept doing it. At one point, there was discussion of us working with Dennis Etchison and having them switch on and off, but Dennis proved to be hard to uh, get a hold of. So uh, so that never happened. But yeah, Ramsey's uh, columns for Video Watchdog are about to be collected in book form, I'm happy to say. Oh, fantastic. Back in 2017, I was at the Chattanooga Film Festival, and Joe Lynch, the director of Wrong Turd, Dead End, and Mayhem was there, and I was wearing my video watchdog T-shirt, and Mr. Lynch stated he was a fan of your magazine, and he too subscribed to it. And I was wondering, what was the influence that video watchdog have on the film industry? a difficult one to answer. I know that we've we heard from a lot of directors and writers, even some actors. We found out through a strange uh, way that Benicio Del Toro was one of our earliest readers because he was out of the country making a movie and his agent contacted us to redirect his subscription copies elsewhere while he was going to be making this film. So that's how we found out about him. I mean, it, it's it was probably much wider than I had any way of expecting. I know that both Quentin Tarantino and Joe Dante used Video Watchdog as background imagery in their movies. It was in Tarantino's Death Proof, the home video version, and uh, it was also in Joe Dante's Burying the X. And Gremlins 2 also had a segment where Leonard Malton was playing someone called the Video Police. <laughs> Just another way of saying video watchdog. Um, 
So, I mean, I, I can see that it had an impact, and I think it especially had an impact with the world of home video and the development of the quality of the extras that are included, the fact that everybody's very keen on having representing two versions of a film if there are two versions or making sure that there's a director's cut and all of that stuff. It's all turned into uh, part of the business now. Your wife, Donna Lucas, was the co-publisher of Video Watchdog. Could you discuss her contribution to the magazine? Anything that I didn't edit or write myself, she was responsible for. So I would say it was probably a good, at least, 70%, maybe 80% of Video Watchdog was Donna's work because she put the magazine together. She designed each and every page, the, the layout of each issue. She would all, also work with me about deciding what we were going to keep, what, what we weren't going to keep in an issue, what would be saved for the next issue. And on top of that, she ran the entire business, shipping the magazine out, answering the telephone. The things that most magazines have staffs of, you know, 20 people to do for them. But we were just a sort of mom and pop business that was run out of our suburban home. And so she had a lot to do. Also, I don't drive a car. So she was the uh, the driver for the magazine. If, uh, if something had to be dropped off at the post office or uh, picked up, you know, so it was just a lot of work that she did. I wanted to give you the opportunity to plug the complete digital archive of all your video watchdog journal issues available in parts or in their entirety at videowatchdog.com where people can read your constantly updated blog. Have you had success with the video watchdog digital archive? And is this an excellent resource available at any public or academic libraries? That would be a, more of a question for Donna than for me, I'm afraid. She was the mastermind behind the digital editions, and I know that right now she's updating them to be uh, accessible to Android. She's also constantly adding little bells and whistles, little surprise videos to back issues. And uh, so I, I know that it's, it's accessible uh, through the website. You can get it through the website, and it's really... An, an amazing thing because each and every back issue was annotated with visuals. They could be trailers for movies or little uh, clips, even video messages from Donna and me. It's fascinating. Also, a, a reader recently provided us with what we needed to complete our back issue index. So we now have in hand a complete back issue index covering uh, all 184 issues and two special editions. So that'll be up on the website at some point in the near future. But the, uh, the digital edition to people who, who are comfortable with, with using something like that it is just so amazing because it's, for one thing, searchable. So if you could just type a title of a film or the name of a filmmaker, an actor, whatever it is that you're interested in, and it'll bring up a whole list of almost 30 years of research uh, that was done in this field. So uh, I, I think it, it's a valuable resource, and it's, it's one that I use a lot myself. You wrote the critical biography of Mario Bava, All the Colors of the Dark, and the book is 800,000 words, and it took 32 years of preparation. With all that research, um, 
What was the most surprising fact you learned about Mario Bava? Oh, that's a good question. I, I, I think probably that what I found out about him were things that I had in common with him, you know, just as a person, being the kind of person I was. So it, it made me wonder that if, if I actually see someone's work and it appeals to me, does that mean that there's something besides movies that we have in common? They could be speaking through the art and bringing us together. He was uh, someone who didn't really take the film business very seriously. He took his craft very seriously, but not the actual film business. And reading was his real passion. You know, he had started out to be a painter. My original drive, my original creative drive was, uh, was drawing. And I, I won an award for, for my artwork in high school. You know, so, so we had that in common. Actually, if you see photographs of us, I mean, like, I'm usually pulling some kind of a face, and he was doing that, too, a lot. So there, there are just, you know, weird personal quirks that we seem to have in common, and I think that that might have had something to do with my subconscious reasons for being attracted to his work. Do you remember the first Mario Bava movie you went to see, and what was that experience like? Well, the funny thing was is that it wasn't like that. I never saw a Mario Bava film in a theater when I was a kid. And I didn't see my first Bava film until uh, it came to local television about 50 years ago. It was just recently that I noticed that it was the 50th anniversary. And that, that movie was Black Sabbath, which in many ways I think is his most perfect movie. I don't know that it's my favorite overall, but I think it's his most perfectly made movie. You know, and even when I saw that film at the time, I liked it, but I didn't have a deep response to it. What what happened with that is that I saw Baba's movie uh, Kill Baby Kill on television. And at some point two weeks before or two weeks after that experience, I think it was two weeks after that experience, I saw the movie Spirits of the Dead at a local theater. And Spirits of the Dead contained the same ghost that Kill Baby Kill contained. And I was, you know, looking up in film books, you know, more about Fellini and about Mario Bava trying to find out any scrap of information. And it was very hard to find anything on Bava that didn't just say bomb. That was the accepted view at the time. At the same time, Fellini would always get four stars. Everyone said, this is like, you know, the very greatest filmmaker of all time. And, you know, you must see everything that you can by him. But I saw they were working with the same visual vocabulary. And I saw them as being very much the same in terms of their approach to cinema. So I was wondering why this dichotomy. As I began to research this, it took me a long time to find out. But I found out that they were both very good friends and actually had offices just a few doors down from each other, and they would send messages back and forth attached to a little remote radio-controlled car, like a toy Jeep, uh, that they would steer back and forth from their respective offices on the same floor. You know, again, it's, it's finding these weird connections. And even now, my biggest joy in, in researching any kind of film is discovering a strange subterranean connection between one film and another that is important to me as well. I was watching the Blu-ray of Arrow's uh, videos, Mario Bava's Blood and Black Lace, and 
And it stated before the movie, the restoration of Blood and Black Lace was graded with participation of yourself, Tim Lucas. Could you discuss what your responsibilities on the restoration of Blood and Black Lace? Well, one of the things was they had a sort of open-framed master, and I helped them to arrive at a decision on whether to present it at a 1.66 to 1 aspect ratio or a 178 to 1 ratio. Actually, you know, either might have been acceptable, but I looked at my references, which included ad mats from Italy and also France, and no one ever used the word super panoramico, which is how they would have stated widescreen in Italy and, and in France. So I told them there's no notation in the ad specifying widescreen, so I suggest that we go with 1.66. They were also asking me about intensities of color, if there was anything I noticed that was off-color. The color that they showed me was absolutely right, so I told them they didn't have any problems with that. But one of the interesting things was is about the size of the frame, the aspect ratio that they discovered is that when they cropped it to 1.66, the main titles at the beginning of the film were perfectly centered. So it just showed me you know, how meticulously composed each and every frame of the film was. And there are a certain number of people who don't accept that explanation, who say that it's just, it's even better at 178 because you can see more material, more information on the screen on the two sides. But that's really not the point. It's not how much more information you can cram in. It's the search for the perfect composition. And I think that's what the, uh, the Arrow version offers. I think it's the perfect presentation of the movie. There's also another release that came out from uh, VCI here in the United States because uh, the people that had the TV syndication rights felt that they had the right to release the film on video. And so it wasn't being contested by Arrow, but they decided to release it at the 1.78 to 1 frame. And, you know, I, I just don't think that it's the, the right choice, but that gives you an idea of how meticulous these, these decisions can be. In your email, when we were emailing back and forth, you stated you were working on a new Blu-ray commentary, and I was curious, could you discuss what it is, and how do you go about preparing to do an audio commentary? Because your commentaries are just full of fascinating tidbits. First of all, the first thing that I have to decide is, or set out to do is to inform myself. I have to try and learn as well as you know, impart my learning. So I do a lot of research in newspaper.com is a great source. I also have a whole wall or two of reference books here at home. But the newspapers.com has turned out to be quite valuable. And there are other websites, of course, like the IMDB that uh, give me a sense of, uh, you know, like an actor or, you know, even the cinematographer, editor, wardrobe designer. Everything gives me information about their background. And I can often see much more than I knew before about what qualified them to get the job on the particular movie that I'm writing about. And then I have to go through and look at each scene in the movie and decide uh, what I'm going to discuss under that particular scene. So it's kind of like writing the musical score for a movie. 
you know, hitting all the right notes and spacing it out and timing it so that I don't overrun the scene that I'm supposed to be talking about. So I've been doing this now for 21 years. And uh, the first one I did was Black Sunday back in 1999. And the one that I just finished is another movie Mario Bava worked on called The Wonders of Aladdin. It was an MGM fantasy that was uh, shot in Italy and also North Africa in 1961, starring Donald O'Connor. It was his last starring role vehicle, and it's a comedy. It's a very beautiful movie, uh, especially now that it's been restored to its original widescreen proportions. This is much wider than just the size of a regular widescreen television. This is uh, 2.35 to 1. And uh, the colors are much more intense and delirious than anything we've seen in the earlier home video release of of this movie. So I think people will be delighted by it. And the one that I'm working on right now is Clint Eastwood's directorial debut, Play Misty for Me. Okay, yeah. All right, great. Uh, For those not in the know, could you discuss the man with the kaleidoscope eyes and what's the latest on this project? Will it ever be filmed? I have no idea, but uh, you know, I, I'm I've got kind of tired of waiting for it to happen, and I thought one way that I might be able to help create additional interest in it is to create something else. So what I did was I took the script, actually a whole series of scripts that go back a number of years, that my co-writer Charlie Largent and I were working on with this. Screenplay, which is a comedy, a sort of dramatic comedy or dramedy, as they say, about Roger Corman and the making of his 1966 drug exploitation movie, The Trip, which starred Peter Fonda and Bruce Dern. And all these people are characters in the story, uh, including the screenwriter of The Trip, who was a young Jack Nicholson. So what I decided to do is to turn those and and distill them into a novel. And I found a publisher for the novel, which is Electric Dreamhouse in the UK, and they're going to publish it in a uh, a special edition that will be coming out early next year in hardcover. And I'm hoping to find another publisher to bring out a sort of popular edition because Electric Dreamhouse tends to do special limited signed editions, and I think this has a, a broader commercial appeal. Uh, Joe Dante uh, has read the book, and he told me that he thought it was the best writing that he'd ever seen me do. And Roger Corman's wife, Julie, has read it, and she said that she thought it was a marvel. So, you know, I'm I'm very happy about the response that people have had to the book. And and Joe in, in actually just told me that he was very happy that I decided to go ahead and do this, because this story had to be told this way, even if a movie does manage to be made from it. The, the book is its own thing. Um, in doing research, you wrote a draft to the sequel to The Fly, and in what direction would, would your script of The Fly 2 have taken? What I wrote for The Fly, it was called Flies, plural, because Alien was the big movie at that moment in 1986. And uh, what happened in the story is that Veronica Quaif, the the Gina Davis character was mourning Seth Brundle's passing, you know, and, and getting on with her life and actually writing for 
Stasis Foreign's Science Magazine. And as she was writing an article one night while she was pausing between paragraphs, her screen began to write to her and prompt her with questions and direct her to information that she was wondering about. And, you know, she thought that she might be hallucinating. But it turned out that Seth Brundle's intelligence was trapped in a computer and was able to communicate with her directly through the computer. And they basically initiate a correspondence at first without her realizing who she's talking to. And then it finally comes out. She realizes that Seth is in the computer and he explains to her that when he was transmitting himself or teleporting himself from one pod to another, his biological information got fed into the computer system and was stayed there for uh, recreation in the second pod. Basically, all of his information had to be kept in the computer in order to be transmitted. So actually what the company that he was working for has done is they've kept his essential self imprisoned inside the computer and working for them. It's a kind of analogy to how Bela Lugosi and White Zombie used the zombies as cheap labor for his business. So what they conspire to do together is to infiltrate the company, access the main computer, and free him. And the reason I did that was because Jeff Goldblum apparently was not uh, too uh, sure if he wanted to appear in the movie, but it was conceived primarily as a vehicle for Gina Davis. So it was mostly about her, and then there was a scene where Jeff Goldblum could appear at the end of the movie, you know, after a very gory attempt to uh, pierce the security around the building that was holding him hostage. I haven't gone back and looked at this material in a long time, you know, basically since I wrote it. And I was talking to uh, Emma Westwood, who wrote a book about the fly, and I was explaining this to her. And she said, this was 1986. And I said, yes. And she said, do you realize you invented email? (laughs) 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 Because that's essentially what's happening. Uh, Veronica and Seth as he's trapped in the computer, are having an email correspondence. And that's what I would have put on the screen had the story been done. But I remember that Stuart Kornfeld, who recently passed away, he was the producer of The Fly, and he didn't think that the movie was, that my treatment was cinematic enough. And David Cronenberg read it, and he disagreed, and he said that this is actually the direction that he would prefer that he took. But then as it turned out, Nick Garris became involved, and Nick Garris had a close connection with Steven Spielberg at the time. So he was like the guy with the inside track. He was someone that they wanted to foster a relationship with, and they went with his proposal. So my idea was never made, but I do have the treatment, and I assume that 20th Century Fox has it somewhere in their files as well. What do you think is the greatest exploitation movie ever made, and why? The greatest exploitation movie ever made. <laughs> uh, it, uh, what kind of exploitation? <laughs> well, the drive-in type. Any kind of exploitation? Yeah, I mean, you know. Um, I find that really an impossible question to answer. There's, there are just so many. Um, well, do you, know, you have I mean, a favorite? 
do I have a favorite exploitation movie? Mm-hmm. I, I don't really think of them in, in terms of being exploitation movies, but I, I do like exploitation movies that are sort of subversive, that have a sort of inside inner message uh, that they want to get across, you know, a, a political uh, commentary or a social commentary. I think George Romero was really excellent at that. So, you know, I might say Dawn of the Dead or Night of the Living Dead for its own time. I'm working on a book now about the sexploitation filmmaker, Joe Sarno. And Joe Sarno made sexploitation movies, but what he was actually doing was he was using that business in order to make really psychologically sound and probing stories about how adult men and women communicate. And he would sometimes go off in some very metaphysical directions. So I think he was he was using that for a strange purpose. And and when when I watch his movies, I sometimes wonder what audiences were feeling by the end of the movie because they went in there to get a cheap thrill, and ended up getting some kind of deeper life lesson from the whole thing. I wonder if, if those movies changed anyone's lives back at that time. What are some of your favorite books about movies? Well, the very first book that I ever bought about movies was Hitchcock Truffaut, the interview between Alfred Hitchcock and Francois Truffaut. I bought that around uh, 1969 or 1970, and I read it until it fell apart. And uh, I remember I wanted to start a fanzine, and I thought that I would take the two-page spread that would show the, uh, the different frames from The Shower Murder and Psycho, I actually cut those two pages out of my copy, my original copy, and wanted to sort of get them printed to be the cover of my fanzine. I had no compunction about stealing the material from uh, the book, but then that that never ended up happening. I just ended up ruining my book for no good reason. Um, Another one was uh, Horror in the Cinema by Ivan Butler. That was another early purchase, and that had an entire chapter toward the end that was focused on Roman Polanski's Repulsion, which was the first really in-depth study of a movie that I ever read, and I was fascinated by it, and I I had never seen the movie before. And then when the movie finally came around on late-night television here locally, I was I was really fascinated to watch it, and it was like I had already seen the movie several times. That was a wonderful experience. It also sort of inculcated in me the idea that it's not important to have seen a movie to read film criticism. Film criticism can inform you about the movies that you want to see or that you should see. And I don't really believe in spoilers either. I mean, some movies, it's not a good thing really to have surprises ruined. You know, if you're supposed to jump, you should be able to jump. But I've never felt that anything was really ruined by my knowing how something was going to turn out. Because if a movie's well-made, it should still please and startle and entertain you. But my favorite of all is still the Phil Hardy edited book, The Encyclopedia of Horror Movies, which I got in the mid-80s. And it was just sort of capsule reviews of everything that had come out. And it was updated again in the early 2000s. So it ended uh, with Twin Peaks Fire Walk With Me. But that was, you know, it's, it's short form criticism, but it's still detailed and intelligent. And uh, it helped me to discover a wealth of movies I would have never known about otherwise. And I know that it it also uh, 
had a lot to do with making Video Watchdog happen. It inspired me because that movie got myself and a lot of friends into trading tapes, you know, even with people from other countries. So when we started reading about the films that were covered in that book, like the Jose Mojica Marin films and the Jess Franco films, we would start looking for them, and, and sometimes those searches took us off in, to other countries and other friendships, and uh, it, it shrank the size of the world a great deal, ultimately. And there's a lot of great stuff being done now, but it's very focused, very concentrated uh, on individual directors. It doesn't really seem like there's much in a more broad, general way. Uh, Jonathan Rigby's four books, on uh, English Gothic, American Gothic, Euro Gothic, and Studies in Terror. I mean, those are probably the best books written on the horror, science fiction, fantasy genres in this century. They're, they're just essential overviews of what's been happening. During the pandemic, uh, what have you been watching or what do you recommend? This can be streaming or Blu-ray. Actually, the, uh, the pandemic hasn't changed my life too much because, you know, like, like a lot of writers, I'm basically a shut-in. As I said before, I don't do my own driving, So, uh, but actually we've been having groceries delivered and uh, carry-out meals delivered and things like that, so it hasn't really changed my life at all, and it hasn't changed my viewing either. You know, I get sent movies for review, and I that tends to be what, what we watch. Lately, we've been watching Gunsmoke, <laughs> of all things. The complete series of Gunsmoke recently came out in a large box set, and I was attracted by another friend's enthusiasm for the show and ended up getting addicted to it myself. You know, it's, it's a fascinating and in some way a gothic set of stories. The, the early half-hour episodes are very much like uh, little concise gothic tragedies in a strange way. They, they often remind me of Edgar Allan Poe stories. So it's a sort of unexpected pleasure. Also finding all of the great different guest stars that they have turning up in them. All the way from the, in the earliest episodes, you'll find people that were in a lot of Roger Corman's cheap pre-AIP titles at that time. Then as you go on, you see Bruce Dern and just all kinds of people. Jack Elam all the great, you know, Western character actors turn up. So it's a, it's turning out to be this, this great discovery of wonderful performances that I never knew about because they happened on television instead of in the movies. Did you by chance see the one um, with Cloris Leachman that was written by Sam Peckinpah? I believe I did, yes. The one where she kills her husband? Yes. Uh-huh. Yes. Yes. Uh, that just yes. blew me away. And then at the end, when it said written by Sam Peckinfall, I thought, wow. There was another one that we saw recently. Um, I forget which title it was, but it was signed by David S. Peckinpah, which was his, his actual birth name. I don't know why he decided to go with with the other name, but it was written by him. And it was a really powerful episode. It may have been The Cabin. It was around the time I saw The Cabin anyway. But The Cabin is another one that he wrote, and it's just incredible. Yeah. Um, final question. When we were corresponding back and forth to set up the interviews, um, one of your emails was sent at 2.43 a.m., and 
I'm just curious, how much time do you spend writing? What's your writing process? Uh, my writing process is when I get around to it, basically. I wish I could say that I'm disciplined about it, but I'm not. I don't write every day. I write most days, and uh, some days I end up just corresponding with people rather than doing any creative work or just conducting business with people that I'm working with in some respect or another. So I don't have a set pattern. But the one thing that has become a set pattern lately is that around uh, midnight, when my wife goes to bed, because she she works out of the home, she's uh, a sort of office manager for another magazine now, she has to get up at a certain hour, and so she always turns in at 11.30 or, or midnight. When that happens, I don't have as much fun watching movies by myself as I used to. So what I do is I turn off the television and go up to the attic and read. And and depending on what I'm reading, I will read until 2 or 3 in the morning and then go to bed and then wake up around 10 or 11 and uh, get to my computer by noon. And then I usually end by around 7.30 or 8 o'clock. Well, I just wanted to say thank you for doing this interview for me. I really appreciate it. No problem at all, William. Have a good day. Okay, thank you. I would like to thank Tim Lucas for granting us the interview. Today's music is from Blood and Black Glaze by Carlo Rusticelli. (laughs) 